how to get stronger in God. First Samuel chapter 30, and we're gonna look at a point in the life of Jesus where David, this great man of God, hit rock bottom, okay? He hit rock bottom. And he came to a moment in his life where everything and everyone was against him. Everything, and this is not an exaggeration, everything and everyone was against him. And he was completely alone. And he turns to God in this moment. And he does something that is profoundly important for you in this season. So I don't know if you've hit rock bottom yet. I don't know if you've gotten to that point like I have where you just want to like, scream at the world and tell it to stop and and this whole thing has got you worked up like you don't know what's going on you don't recognize uh your life you don't you don't understand the the times and you're just frustrated and you're anxious about your future and and then at the same time the very things that should be supporting you have just been ripped out from under you have you ever been there because if you've been there You're in good company. A guy by the name of King David, before he was king, by the way, had this rock bottom moment and it's described for us in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And so I wanna ask you, would you do this with me? Would you stand right in your homes or wherever you are, just stand for the reading of God's word. And we've been doing something cool, got a lot of positive feedback from a lot of you online about how we've been reading the word of God over the course of this season, this crisis. And uh, it's just a special way to engage God's word. So as you're standing, will you hear the word of God through this video, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Watch this. First Samuel 30, verses one to six. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Luke 22, verses 39 to 43. And Jesus came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. Amen. This is the reading of God's word. Let's pray together. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that these next few moments are directed by you, 
are saturated with a sense of your presence, sweet Holy Spirit. I ask God that our eyes are opened and that our hearts are receptive and that our minds are renewed through the life-transforming power of the Word of God. I pray especially for your people and for those who are not your people but are listening to me right now, that they will be encouraged, that they will be strengthened, that they will lean in to who you are. You are the God of all comfort. We glorify you and praise your holy name. And we ask that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. And everybody said, amen. God bless you. Have a seat. God bless you. God bless you. Okay. Hitting rock bottom. Have you been there? Because that's where David is in this text. Now, the thing about the Bible heroes that we constantly are guilty of doing is associating them with their high moments, their, their in, incredible moments, okay? So you think about Moses dividing the Red Sea, or you think about Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost, or you think about uh, Deborah uh, winning the battle in the midst of the season of judges, and, and you think about these great heroes of the faith, you think about these moments that they had, and you look back on them, and you can almost let their highlight moments cause you frustration, because your, your life is filled with a lot more low moments or ordinary moments than high moments, and if you're not careful, you'll get discouraged, because you only go to the high moments of the heroes of scripture is kind of like Instagram. Instagram is not real life. Instagram is people's highlight reel. It's the good moments that they want to put on uh, the front page of your newspaper so that you can feel like their life is really important and significant. And, and this is so unhealthy for us, not in just our human condition to react to other people, but it's so unhealthy for us in the Bible. Like, You've got to realize that there are people in the scriptures like David who have these incredible high moments, but there was a ton of low points. There were, there were years of frustration. There were decades of waiting for God to show up. And so David, whose name becomes synonymous with another name in the Bible, what name is that? David and who? David and? Goliath, right? That's his high moment. But do you understand? Here's the thing about David. I don't know if you ever read through First and Second Samuel, but David's high moment with Goliath is followed by a succession of terrible moments. For instance, right off the bat, he starts getting celebrated by the nation, and the people start singing his praises, and and they sing this song, and they say. Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And this infuriates Saul, and, and he wants to kill David. So David, who kills Goliath, now wants to be killed by the king of Israel. And by the way, this is a man that he was serving. This is a man that he loved and that he honored. It was his employer, and it was also his eventual father-in-law. And he gets nothing but animosity, nothing but trouble from Saul for 13 years. Saul 
chucks spears at David. He throws chairs at David. He wants to kill David. He tries to trap David. He tries to deliver David over to the hands of his enemies. And this great moment, David and Goliath is followed by these moments of David running from Saul. He has to go hide in caves in the desert in the middle of nowhere. Well, all the other people who are frustrated with Saul's kingdom, Saul's leadership, they start flocking to David. David eventually ends up with an army of about 600 men. And he's leading these men and uh, running from Saul, and his army is getting stronger, and he's winning battles, but he's still on the run for his life. And so when he's just at the point where he can't take it anymore, living under Saul, he decides to do something that he feels, this is definitely going to cut Saul off from trying to kill me. And here's what he does. <laughs> this is so cr- You might not even know this actually happened with David, but here's what happened. He actually went to the Philistines and join them for a season. Yeah, remember Goliath? Goliath was a Philistine, right? So David, now years later, running from Saul, doesn't know where else to go, is scared for his life, and he joins up the enemies of Israel. And, and he kind of joins up in, in physicality, but not in heart, because he goes out and he still fights the enemies of Israel, and then he comes back and he tells uh, you know, the king of um, the Philistine nation, he tells him, look, you know, I've been fighting this person, that person. He's really lying. And anyway, he's really in a bad place and he's just trying to fight for his life. And anyway, at this point, he goes uh, to war with the Philistine army and they're actually going to fight the Israelites. And David is lined up in battle with his 600 men and they're about to fight David's own people. And we don't know how it's going to go. We I, I still don't know how it's going to go because here's what happens. By God's grace, the Philistine kings say, we can't trust this guy. He's the one that they sing about. He's the one that killed Goliath. He's, the, he's been our sworn enemy. And so while he had this relationship with one king in, Philist, in Philistia, uh, Achish, the rest of them don't trust him. And so Achish had to turn to David and say, David, go back home. My, my friends don't trust you. I trust you. They don't trust you. You gotta go back home. And so David has to go back home with his 600 men. And he goes back, and his home at this point was named Ziklag. And in the text, we just saw it. Here is what happens. David has just been kicked out of the Philistine army. He doesn't know where he's going to go next. As far as he knows, there's no end in sight to Saul's persecution, Saul hunting him down. And you have to think, this is how he is coming back home with his 600 men who are now probably more discouraged than ever about where they belong in the world. And here's what he meets. Verse 1 of chapter 30. Let's look at it again now in context. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, they came back home. The Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag, and they had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but they carried them off and went their way. This is David's rock bottom. You have to put yourself in his place and you have to ask yourself, what more can go wrong? My, my boss, my father-in-law hates me. My nation has in some ways disowned me and even my adoptive people, the Philistines, have rejected me. And then I come home and this other ancient enemy of Israel, the Amalekites, have just taken everything from him. 
his wives, his children, and not just his, but all 600 of his men. They've lost everything. And his home is burned to the ground. It's so bad that the scripture says that David and his men weep so much, they weep until they have no more energy to weep. Rock bottom will do that to you. Am I right? And and then suddenly the the men that David has in his charge come come around to their senses and start putting some dots together. They, They start to string things together and they think, wait a second, this all happened since we started following David. And then look what verse six says. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. They, <laughs> this, this passage, okay, I, you, need to, you need to put yourself in the passage. David has no one. David has been rejected. David has been hated by everyone. The only people that he had in his corner were his 600 followers, his 600 army, a measly army by ancient numbers standards. And that's all he had. And now the very last thing that he has, his army, they want to to stone him. The scripture says that he was distressed and this word is picturesque because it's a word that refers to being wrapped up tight in in cords, it, it refers to not just being um, saddened. It refers to being um, gripped and overwhelmed with sorrow. And I thought about this moment. Like, this might be your moment right now. <laughs> because isn't it ironic that the very thing that you have going for you, no matter how bad your day is, no matter how bad of a work day you have, no matter what your friends say, at least, at least in normal times, you can come home and you can rest and you can kick up your feet and you can maybe have a meal and you can hang with your family and at least you've got that, right? (laughs) But what's happened to us in this season? We've been told, stay at home and Remain at home and don't leave home. And, and ironically, the very thing that we had going for us, I don't know if you feel like this, but I feel like this, the very thing that we had going for us has now become a trap for us. My, my home, your home, has become a de facto prison as you watch the news endlessly, as you tune into what else could go wrong, what else are they going to say? Is this ever going to end? Are we ever going to get out of this thing? What's happening? And now the very thing that used to bring you peace is now bringing you stress. Have you been there? Because that's where David is. I, I, I just, I don't, know, I don't know if you're like me, but I, I'm like having these moments where I'm like remembering the good old days. Remembering the good old days. The, the, the weekend before this whole thing broke out, my, I took my son to a Celtics game and we were watching the game. And do you ever go to a sporting event and there's a guy behind you that just won't be quiet. He will not shut up. Every single miss, he has to fly off the handle. Every bad pass, he has to scream at them. And he was so loud and he was so obnoxious and he was driving the entire 
pure row crazy. And we were all like going like, stop it, dude. And he wouldn't stop. And this guy was just obnoxious as all get out. And I remember leaving the, 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 the stadium that night with my son saying, you know, I, it might have been fun, but that guy was so awful. And my son's like, yeah, I know. He kind of he drove me nuts. And now I'm thinking back to that moment. And I'm thinking back to like, that was the good old days. Like, yeah, I wish I could go back to that guy screaming in my ear. Like, how many of you have had this moment where you're thinking, oh, to be stuck in traffic again, right? Or, oh, to have, to have a long wait, you know, at the, at the register somewhere. Or, oh, to have bad service at a restaurant again. You know, like, like thinking back to the good old days, like, that's what happens when everything is taken from you and everything has turned against you and now you're stuck in your home and you're trapped and you're distressed. And what do you do? What do you do? How do we handle that? Well, here's what David did. And I, and I left out the second half of verse six intentionally because I wanted you to see the first half. Everyone wants to stone him. Everyone is hating on him. He's got no one. Verse six, the last half of the verse says, but David strengthened himself and the Lord is God. Wow. What a passage. I want you to take note of something in this verse because this verse is teaching us something. Number one, it's teaching us that you can strengthen yourself. You can strengthen yourself. Um, I, I just thought about how many things that we do on a regular basis that we are required to do them on our own. Like, we have to do this on our own. Like, if you get really hungry, right? Just work through this with me for a second. When you get really hungry, you don't wait for people to show up to eat. If you're really hungry and you're all alone, you're eating, right? You're not gonna say, oh, I'd love to eat and I'd love to get strength from food, but I need someone to help me do this. No, when you're hungry, you go get something. Same thing with working out. If you, if you like to exercise, like... You know, when I, when I started working out, I had a workout partner. That lasted about six months. And then ever since then, and I've been working out since 2002. And, you know, I have had like maybe three partners that, and, and, and they've like lasted maybe three months. But I don't wait for somebody to show up and say, hey, come, let's work out. I go. I, I need to do that for myself. Here's what I'm saying. Things that are important to us, things that we need, we absolutely do for ourselves when we need to do it. But for some reason, for a lot of people, there's a disconnect when it comes to getting stronger in the spirit. Are you hearing me? Like there, there comes this moment where you have got to stop relying on someone else to lead you into a deeper relationship, into a stronger relationship with the Lord. And you have got to learn how to strengthen yourself in the Lord, your God. So that even if everybody else is turned against me, even if my mentor isn't there for me, my church can't gather for me, my pastor, my leaders, they can't hug me, they can't pray, lay hands on me, that I still have an option, I still have a go-to, I can do what David did, I can strengthen myself in the Lord, my God. Secondly, this verse teaches me that God wants you to do it. Like God wants you to do it. He has made it possible for you to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Some of you think that you're only gonna get stronger in the Lord when you can come back to this building. Wrong. 
So some of you think you can only get stronger in the Lord when things are going well for you. Wrong. Here's another thing. Some of you think that you can only get stronger in the Lord when your prayers are answered. Like that's when you get strong. Oh, that, okay, now my prayer's answered, so now I know I'm getting stronger in the Lord because God answered my prayers. Nope, wrong. That's not the only time. You can get stronger in the Lord when you've got nothing and no one and when you're trapped and the very place that should be your your, your habitation, the place of refuge, when that very place becomes a prison, even then you can get stronger in God. So I wanna finish this message out by, by giving you three ways how to strengthen yourself in the Lord. Number one, write this down or take notes. They're right here. You can click notes right to the right of me. How to strengthen yourself in the Lord. I must have, number one, a relationship with the Lord. And if you got your notes out, write relationships, circle it, star it, underline it, whatever you gotta do. If you wanna get stronger in the Lord, it starts with a relationship with the Lord. And this is so important because so many people go to church, they don't have a relationship with the Lord. (laughs) It's entirely possible for you to have a relationship with the church and not with the Lord. It's entirely possible for you to be so... um, baptized into a particular denomination, it even becomes your identity, and you don't know the Lord. It's entirely possible. See, this was Israel's problem. This was Israel's problem when Jesus showed up because guess what they did? They had an attachment to the temple and they had an attachment to the scriptures, but they had no knowledge of the Lord because Jesus shows up and says, I'm the new temple and this this temple is gonna be destroyed in three days, it's gonna rise up again and they didn't know what he was talking about and then in John chapter five, he says, the scriptures that you think give you life, they point to me. Those scriptures are about me. In other words, it's entirely possibly so religiously bound and so religiously minded that you literally have only a cursory knowledge of the Lord through an intermediary third party, i.e. a denominational structure, religious place, or identity. And here's what I'm asking you to do. Here's what I think you need to do in this time, in this season where you are locked away. It's time to get a relationship with the Lord. Okay, let's look at this verse six again. But, but David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. His is emphasized here, right? His God, the Lord, his God. Is Jesus your God? Is he mom and dad's God? Is he, is he just, you know, my community's God or my nation's God? No, 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 is he your God? And then I wanna, I wanna emphasize different words in this next slide. Because look at the different words I'm going to emphasize here. David strengthened himself in the Lord, his God. Okay, those two words, Lord and God, are not synonyms. They are not the same word in the Hebrew. I want you to, I want to unpack this for you because it's so important that you understand how the scriptures speak right from the first page of the scriptures. See, David knew the Lord, the word there is Yahweh, his God Elohim. Fun fact for you about the Bible. Genesis chapter one opens up, and the first chapter of Genesis, it talks about God creating the heavens and the earth. He is the God of creation, and the whole first chapter of Genesis, the only word that refers to God in Hebrew is Elohim. And that word Elohim is a generic term for God, okay? It is a generic term for the Lord of the, the, the God of the universe, the God who creates, Genesis chapter one. 
incredibly what happens is in Genesis chapter 2, it changes. The name for God changes to Yahweh. A word so sacred to Israel, they refuse to say it to this day because we cannot take the name of the Lord God in vain. And, and there's another message for why they do that and we don't. But Yahweh is all throughout Genesis 2. And what happens in Genesis 2? Yahweh, the Lord, shows up. He plants a garden and then he takes the dirt and he, and he makes a man. And then he fashions out of the man a woman and he brings them together. And, oh, and before that, he actually gives the man a law. You can eat any tree but that one. So that one's for me. The rest are for you. And, and then he gives him a wife. He gives him the naming of the animal's job and all that kind of stuff. And they were meant, they were intended Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, she wasn't named Eve at that point, they were just Adam, one man, one woman, together, one flesh. And they were to have, listen, in the garden, an intimate, personal relationship with the God of creation. Genesis chapter one, God of creation. Genesis chapter two, Yahweh, Lord in the garden. Now, why a garden? Like, why didn't he put them in a house? <laughs> and, and that's a good question. Maybe, maybe now we're finding out why he didn't put them in a house, because a house can be very restrictive, okay? But he puts them in a garden. And I thought about this, that here's, here's why he puts them in a garden, because a garden speaks of three realities. Three realities of the garden, and they're all tied to us. These, these are you have to understand, the scriptures are intentional every step of the way. So Genesis chapter one is saying there's a God over everything, and then Genesis chapter two is, do you know him? Are you walking with him? Are you in a garden relationship with him? So here's, here's what a garden speaks of, three things. Number one, a garden speaks of intimacy. A garden speaks of intimacy. How many marriages that I have performed in gardens? I, I, I've performed many. How many people love to get out in nature? How many people love to have a garden near their home? And here's the thing about intimacy in a garden, because an intimacy, a, a garden not just, doesn't just create intimacy for people, it creates intimacy between you and the world. We modern Americans, we modern people don't get this because we go down the road to the grocery store and we buy our carrots. But when you grow your own carrots, intimacy happens. You start to dig into that soil. You're connected. You're planting. You're watering. And you start to become intimate with the creation that God has given you. And there's a, there's a revelation to be had there. It's a breathtaking revelation. When you start to work the ground God gave you and you start to get fruit from it, it brings you closer to God, right? Like there's no intermediary. There's no third-party grocer that's doing all the work for you, handing the carrot over to you, and you just hand them cash. No, you have actually done this, and it creates intimacy with you and with the Lord. But the second thing is that a garden speaks of cultivation. A garden is work. A garden is work. Somebody say work in your homes right now. Say work. Say work. And let me tell you something. I know that a garden is a ton of work because I don't want to do it. I don't have a garden. My... My, my wife, many years ago, in our home, she, she wanted to have this beautiful garden, and so she went out, and I, you know, all credit to her, she's amazing, she went outside, and she, you know, hoed the land, and she, you know, dug the trenches, and then she planted the seeds, 
And then she came out every day and she was watering the garden and, the, and they came up and this is like in the midst of July up here in New England and they came up and, and they were starting to grow and I would watch this and I wasn't really doing anything and she was cultivating and she was doing all this work and then she started to have these plants and it was beautiful but they weren't, you know, there was no fruit yet because, um, well, it was just early and, and then I went out one day and I saw that there was all these weeds in the midst of the rows, in the middle of the rows. And I said, man, somebody should help my wife, Cheryl, out and, uh, and weed the garden. So I went out, and I got on the ground, and I just got down, and, you know, intimacy, right? And I started to pull the weeds, but then I realized this is, this is a lot of work. I'm really not into this. And it's like, it took me like 10 minutes to do half a row. And I'm like, no thanks, I'm not doing that. So here's what I did. Here's what brainless me did. I, I go to the shed, and I get some weed killer. And I hooked the thing, it was one of those things, you hook it up to your hose, and I hooked up the weed killer into the hose, and I went out, and, and I thought, here's what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna very gently uh, spray the weed killer in between the rows, just on the weeds, and so I did. I just sprayed the weed killer up and down the rows, because I was too stinking lazy to weed. So guess what happens? You know what happens in that situation. Everything starts to die, and, my, and I didn't tell my wife I did this, and this goes on for two weeks. She's out there, and she's watering and she's trying to tend and she's starting to think, man, I'm a bad gardener. I guess I, guess I don't know how to do this. And, and so finally she's like, uh, she's like, Tim, I can't get these, uh, these, these plants to grow. And I said, oh, do you think that the weed killer had anything to do with it? And she's just like, what weed killer? I'm like, oh, I, I was trying to help you. But, but here's the thing. She wanted to kill me afterwards. But anyway, here's the thing. The garden was dead. The whole thing was gone. I wanted to take the short route to see produce in that garden. And when it comes to gardens, there's no short route. You just gotta put the work in. Here's the thing about a relationship with God. You gotta put the work in. So many people want a close relationship with the Lord, but they don't wanna put work into it. They don't wanna put effort. I don't want to say work because it's like it's not a job, but I'm talking about effort, like time and energy, and and say, Lord, I, I need to, I need to get alone with you. I, I need to cut the television off, and I, I need to put my phone in another room, and I need to get on my knees, and I need to pray to you and talk to you, cultivate. And then the last thing that a garden speaks of is growth. It speaks of increase. It speaks of development. And here's what God wants for you. And I, wanna, I want to summarize this idea of the Lord of the garden with this phrase. Here's the phrase. God wants me to have an intimate relationship with him that I cultivate daily and grow from continually so that I can thrive in life. I'm going to say something and it's going to pinch. Okay, here's the thing. Your current response to this situation, this crisis, your lack of peace, your sense of being overwhelmed, your fear about the future, is the byproduct of the amount of work you put into a relationship with the Lord of the garden before you got into it. Did you, did you catch what I just said? In other words, your emotional quotient, your heart quotient of how well you're handling this is the fruit of the work 
the amount of work you put in, the amount of effort you put in to developing a close, intimate relationship with God before you got into this. Here's what God's saying to you. Learn from this. This is your chance to say, this will not be the last time that I go through something terrible. This will not be the last time that I experience something that is overwhelming to me. So, I am going to be ready. I am going to... Next time this comes around, next time something like this happens, I'm going to thrive. Why? Because I have chosen to cultivate an intimate relationship with God daily so that I could grow and get stronger and thrive in any season of life. Trust me, this is what David had. This is what God wants you to have. Psalm 63, this is David. Listen to just his intimacy. Psalm 63. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. You know, sometimes the Lord takes everything away from you so that he is all that you have and you learn that he is all that you need. Psalm 84, another fabulous passage from David. Psalm 84.10, he says, For a day in your courts, Lord, is better than a thousand elsewhere. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. If you want to get stronger in the Lord during the season, you've got to have a relationship with the Lord. Not a relationship with the church. Not a relationship with the denomination. Not a relationship with this cursory kind of idea of this vague God out there who could be Muhammad's God or he could be Gandhi's God or he could be Jesus's God. I'm not sure, but he's out there. Wrong. God doesn't want that. He wants to have you know him. Yahweh, the Lord who loves you and has a plan for you. Number two, if you want to strengthen yourself in the Lord, you must prioritize your relationship with the Lord. It's got to be a priority. It's, it's got to come first. It's got to come first. So work and then first, okay? This is what David models for us. Priority. It says in verse 7, past the passage that we actually read, right after this verse in 6, he says that David strengthens himself in the Lord. And that's verse 7, it says this. And David said to Abiathar the priest, son of Ahimelech, bring me the ephod. And he brought him the ephod. And the ephod was the way to determine. It had these two, we don't even really know what they were. They were called the umen and the tumen. Like two dice, some people think they were dice, and they carried them in the pockets of the ephod, the priest's clothing. And they would take them out and they would roll them on the ground to determine the will of the Lord. Now, we don't do this anymore because the will of the Lord is given to us by the Holy Spirit and the Scriptures. But, but this is how they did it in the Old Testament, before Scriptures, before the Holy Spirit was in everybody. And here's what you need to see about David. He, everybody hates him, and he goes to God. And he wants to know, what does God have to say? And this is an important distinction between David and his predecessor, Saul. See, because Saul was also in a similar situation to David. He was at this point, and in, in earlier on in uh, 1 Samuel 13, where he was faced with an army that was overwhelming him, and Saul looked at the men that he was leading, and I want you to see this, because it's so important. This is how Saul handled the same situation that David was in. Verse uh, 8 and 9 of 1 Samuel 13, it says, He, Saul, waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal. And notice that phrase here. And the people were scattering from him, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings, and he offered the burnt offering. And what he does there is he actually, he actually breaches the command of the Lord concerning kings that they were not to act as priests, they were only kings. 
prophet, priest, king in the Old Testament were separate functions that were to point to Jesus, the only true prophet, priest, king. But before Jesus, no one person could be prophet, priest, and king, or prophet and priest, or king and prophet. None. Okay, so, so what Saul does is he looks at the people and he's seeing that their opinion of him is changing and so he decides to break the word of the Lord to appease people. And what the difference is, is, is so glaringly clear in scripture that Saul disobeyed what God said to please people and David looked for what God said and did it in spite of what people said about him. See, this is how you get stronger in the Lord. You wanna get stronger in the Lord? Here's how it is. If you wanna get stronger, God's voice must be louder in your ear and your heart than men's opinions. It's gotta be the number one voice. And, and you've got to get to this point, and hopefully during the season where you've got no one else and nothing around you, hopefully during the season, you are getting into God's word, you are getting into prayer, you are getting on your knees, and you are listening to him, and his voice is louder than men's opinions, so that when you come out of this, you're stronger in the spirit, and you can do what God says in spite of what mom might say, or kids might say, or spouse might say, or neighbor might say. Because you're about, I mean, this thing's going to come to an end, right? This thing's going to come to an end. And you're about to jump back into the world as it was, or as it kind of was, or whatever. <sighs> Who are you going to listen to in that moment? It's got God's voice louder. Psalm 119, love this passage. It says, Psalm 119, 28. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Let your word be the thing that I align to. Here's what we gotta do, Christians. In spite of what popular opinion says, we've gotta listen to God. In spite of what Republican or Democrat says, we listen to God. In spite of what my friends and my neighbors and all my crew and all my friends think and all the people that I work with think, in spite of that, I listen to God and if it starts to cost me friends and family and if it starts to cost me relationships, then I know that that's okay because I have a greater relationship, a better relationship with the Lord of the garden, the God of the universe that strengthens me when everyone else leaves me. Number three. How to strengthen yourself in the Lord? I must regularly invest in the priority of my relationship with the Lord. So relationship with the Lord, priority with the Lord, prioritize a relationship, and then regularly invest in your relationship with the Lord. Or simpler terms. I just thought I'd put this simpler for you. If the Lord is your first priority, act on it. We always say, oh, the Lord's first. Okay, Lord's first. So then there must be Obedience to the Lord over what you think is right. Lord's first. Okay, well then, then the Lord is who you listen to before you listen to the news, the, before you listen to the banker, before you listen to the financial advisor. Lord's first. Okay, act on it. Put him first. You know, the thing about David's life is that you never know what, what psalms, sometimes you don't know what psalms did he write in the midst of his distress. Sometimes the psalms Tell us, uh, David wrote this psalm when he was hiding in the cave of, of Abdullam. Uh, David wrote this psalm shortly after his incident with um, Goliath, whatever. Or right after his infidelity with Bathsheba, all that stuff. Well, we don't have that 
uh, we don't have a psalm that references this moment, this, this rock bottom moment for David, but I think it was Psalm 25. If I was to guess, I would say he wrote Psalm 25 in the midst of rock bottom, and here's what he writes in Psalm 25. He says, to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, I trust in you. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. And then later in that Psalm, he says, I'm alone. Everybody's against me. So that's why I think it's Psalm 25. And then he says this, make, verse five, make me to know your ways. Oh Lord, teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I wait all the day long. Here's what I think David did at rock bottom. He tuned into God and he opened his heart and he said, okay, God, everything that was once stable in my life is gone. Everything that I counted on, everyone that I looked to, every person that I thought they're with me, it's been pulled out from under me. So here's what I'm saying to you right now, God. Teach me. Teach me. I'm telling you something. A lot of people think they have a relationship with the Lord, but if they're not teachable, if they're not ready to listen to what he might say that they don't want to hear, can you say you have a relationship? See, here's what I did 20 years ago now with a woman named Cheryl. We met at an altar in the front of a church. We didn't meet meet. We just saw each other. We had met each other two years before. Anyway, and we came and we made a decision. And we told each other, I'm going to love you for better, for worse, richer, poorer, sickness, and in health, all those things. And that one decision at the front of that church that day, 20 years ago, has been followed by a billion smaller likewise decisions. If you want a relationship with the Lord, it can't just be, put your hand up, pray this prayer. You're set, good, see you in heaven. And it can't just be, come to church once a week. See what the preacher has to say. If you agree, do it. If you don't agree, walk out. Don't worry about it. That's not a relationship. That's a consumer-based relationship. And it also can't be, and hear me, listen, this is very important for some of you new people at Waters Church. It also can't be, go through the waters of baptism, check the box, got baptized, I'm good, move on with life. That's not a relationship. That's a ritual you want a relationship with the Lord, you have to make a billion smaller decisions to be with him after the first one. Because he is making a billion decisions every day to be with you. He is. I believe with all my heart that God wants to do some seriously cool things in your life right now. Okay, so I wanna share something with you and I don't do this often, so please don't think that this is, this is normal for me or this church and I'm very careful about moments like this. I was writing this part of the message out and um, 
And the Lord just kind of said, I, I need to communicate something specific to my people. And I, 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 I reiterate, I don't do this normally. I don't, uh, I don't say, thus saith the Lord for such and such a time as this. I, you know, that gets abused on television. It gets abused by a lot of preachers. So I take this moment very seriously and sincerely. Please hear me in that. But as I was writing this out, and I just wrote out that passage about, you know, teach me, Lord, what do you want me to hear during this season? And I was praying over the message, and the Lord had me, <laughs> it's going to sound so weird, but just let me tell you, look at the clock at the top right of my computer screen, and it said 1025. And instantly the Lord said, go to Hebrews 1025. So I, I went to Hebrews 10.25. And I kind of knew, I already, I already knew what that verse was because it's one of my favorite verses. This is a preacher verse, right? Hebrews 10.25 says, not neglecting to meet together as is, as, is, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. And that verse is basically saying, church, don't get into the habit of not coming to church. Church, don't get in the habit of not gathering together, small groups and big groups like on Sunday and all that kind of stuff. Don't, don't get into the habit of not doing that because that's going to become the habit of some, but you don't do that. You gather more. And by the way, it says, and more and more and more, the closer that the day of the Lord is. So that verse is telling us that we should be gathering closer together more than ever because Jesus is closer to coming back than ever before in human history. And we're seeing earthquakes and we're seeing famines and we're seeing pestilences and we're seeing all the things that Jesus said, these are the beginning of birth pains. We are seeing that in our day and we should be taking these signs seriously to check and to see if we are seriously in a relationship with the Lord. Because the times are coming to an end. And so I was meditating on that passage, and it was, it was a short meditation because it was still 1025 on the clock. And then the Lord said, Isaiah 1025. And, I, and then I was like taken aback because I'm like, well, I have no idea what that one is. I don't, know, I don't know if I've even thought over Isaiah 20, 1025. And so I just went to Isaiah 1025, and here's what it says. For in a very little while, my fury will come to an end. I was overwhelmed. And I felt that the Lord put this in my spirit for us, for you. The Lord is saying, this is, this is going to come to an end in a very little while. In a very little while, this is going to come to an end. My fury. You say, is the Lord bringing this upon the world? In some ways. He's not the author of it. He's allowing it. He's waking up the world absolutely through it. And then at the Great Tribulation, there's serious famines and serious plagues. And so these are just like symbols of what's greater to come. And the Lord is telling me this. And I think it's for you. When this corona crisis comes to an end, get serious about your relationship to the church and to the people that are going to be with you in heaven. And I feel like I need to say this to some people. Sadly for you, your closest relationships are people who don't love Jesus. 
Now, for some of you, you're married to them, and some of you, they're your kids and your parents, and you have to maintain those relationships, and I understand that, and that's, that's a non-negotiable. I get it, I get it. But, but I'm talking about your chosen relationships, the ones that you can choose. And some of you have no Christian friends. You've felt more alone during this than anybody because you've got no Christian friends that you can call, that you can talk to. So when this comes to an end, gather yourself around God's people all the more as you see the day approaching. And uh, I just feel like I need to say to the whole church, when this thing is over and we're back to somewhat normal and you can go out to the movies and you can go out to the restaurant and you can go out and you can go back and go golf and go this and go that, man, you better watch out because the world is ready to suck you right out of this special significant time that you've had with the Lord where everything else has been ripped out of you. Everything else has been ripped away from you. And now you can jump right back now into all the things that you love to do. And if you're not careful, you'll get sucked up into all the other extracurriculars and your relationship with God will, will fade. So when this comes to an end, don't, don't check out. Don't get sucked in. Lean in to the church, to the people of God. Now, I wouldn't want to preach this whole message without looking at Jesus because this is Palm Sunday and he went to the cross for us and the night before he was betrayed, what does it say? In Luke chapter 22, verse 41, it says, he withdrew about a stone's throw away and knelt down and prayed saying, truly, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but yours be done. And, he, and then it says this, and there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. And I thought about this passage in relationship to the first passage, 1 Samuel chapter 30. Jesus is our true David who strengthened himself. Peter, James, and John, stones throw away, sleeping. The other disciples, the other nine, actually eight, completely out of the picture, Judas betraying everybody and everyone that was important to Jesus was gone. How did he get through the cross? He strengthened himself. And then he went through the cross so that you could receive the Holy Spirit and you could be strong in him. So that you could have a relationship that you can cultivate and grow from so that you can thrive in any season of life. That's what he did for us 2,000 years ago. And I'm asking you, in the midst of all of this, to open your heart to him and receive him.